Good morning, Highland. Uh, it's good to be here with you this morning. Um, thank you for the opportunity uh, that you allow, uh, just the preparation that goes into a Sunday morning I love, um, and it's been a while for me, and so I've really enjoyed this week. It's been um, invigorating, to say the least. Um, there's no doubt, at least from the outside, that the Christmas season can be a spark plug for generosity. It's true that all of us, in some way, will likely encounter generosity more this time of year uh, than any other time. So what is this generosity all about? Um, Whose idea was generosity to begin with? I think if we're honest, generosity is hard. We hear that it's better to give than to receive, but is that really how we feel about generosity? Is it better to give? We all have a generosity problem. Let's just get that out in the open. So before I go further, I just want to say a few things before we get into the scripture. One, this is not a sermon to get you to add generosity to your to-do list this Christmas season. For many of you, that might be like a relief. He's not going to put generosity on me as a to-do thing. This is also not a sermon to guilt you because of your lack of generosity. I can't nor will I try to help you with your selfish problem because I have enough of those of my own to go around. Lastly, we will not be taking up a second offering at the end of a riveting sermon on generosity, okay? There will be none of that. I'm not gonna turn the heat up and and take take another offering. Um, I don't have time for any of those things, so I'm not gonna try to take your stuff and I'm, I'm not gonna tell you what to do with your stuff today. Okay, in light of generosity, I know what you're thinking. Some of you are like, you've got some nerve talking to me about generosity just three weeks before Christmas or a few weeks before Christmas when I've got all these things to buy. So if if I agree not to take your stuff this morning, can we go on? Is that fair? Okay, good. All right, we can go on. I just want to make sure we're on the same page. Um, What we do have time for, however, this morning is to look at the life of Jesus. What did he have to say about generosity? What did he say generosity looks like in the kingdom of heaven? And I want you to consider this morning whether it's possible that you have misunderstood generosity. Do you see generosity as something that you check off your list once a year? Or do you see it at the foundation, at the epicenter of your faith and your life in Jesus If you have your Bibles, we are going to get into the scripture. Turn to Matthew chapter 20. Words will be on the screen. Um, It's Matthew 21 through 16. Jesus speaks to us very plainly on this matter of generosity. And he says, for the kingdom of heaven is like the landowner who went out early one morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay the normal daily wage and he sent them out to work. At nine o'clock in the morning, he was passing through the marketplace and saw some people standing around doing nothing. So he hired them, telling them he would pay them whatever was right at the end of the day. So they went to work in the vineyard. At noon and again at three o'clock, he did the same thing. At five o'clock that afternoon, He was in town again, and he saw some more people standing around. He asked them, why haven't you been working today? They replied, because no one has hired us. 
The landowner told them, then go out and join the others in my vineyard. That evening, he told the foreman to call the workers and pay them, beginning with the last workers first. When those hired at five o'clock were paid, each received a full day's wage. When those hired first came to get their pay, they assumed they would receive more. But they too were paid a day's wage. When they received their pay, they protested to the owner. Those people worked only one hour, and yet you paid them just as much as you paid us who worked all day in the scorching heat. He answered one of them, friend, I haven't been unfair. Didn't you agree to work all day for the usual wage? Take your money and go. I wanted to pay this last worker the same as you. Is it against the law for me to do what I want with my money? Should you be jealous because I am kind to others? And that word kind in the ESV and the NIV and many other translations is generous. So those who are last now will be first then, and those who are first will be last. Four is how this passage begins. Jesus is chosen to reinforce his teaching by means of parable. I think he does this because there is an essential misunderstanding of the gospel among the disciples here. This is why Jesus was speaking to them after all. Just prior to this, the disciples were confounded at Jesus' claims about the kingdom. They couldn't understand who could be saved. Who in the world could be saved, they said, as if to express total confusion. Peter had just said, we've given up everything to follow you. What will we get? Clearly, they're struggling to understand Jesus' teaching, as if Jesus would be indebted to Peter because of Peter's good works. In his kindness, he goes to great lengths to explain. Still today, there is an essential misunderstanding of the gospel. Little has changed among his disciples. The misunderstanding of the gospel results in a total misunderstanding of generosity. So as we listen in on their conversation and this parable, when Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like something, it would do us good to listen intently to just what it is that he is trying to communicate. This parable communicates the essential character of the gospel and life in his kingdom. We plainly see that generosity is at the core of it all. In this parable, we see two distinct views of the gospel. One is right, and it puts generosity on display. The other is false, and it yields separation. This parable teaches us both a right and completely false view of salvation. The contrasts here are stark, and this parable is plain and comprehensive. And when you read this parable, what are your thoughts? What do you think? Who do you see yourself as? None of us can rightly claim to be the landowner. So do you sympathize with the workers who worked early, the first workers? Do you understand their case? Does the worker make a valid point to the landowner? Or do you see yourself as one of the other workers? chosen later. We are called to examine ourselves in light of this parable and test our own view of the gospel, salvation, and generosity. 
As I've read this parable this week, I've seen at least five areas of stark contrast that I want to call to your attention. There are more, but each of these areas are rooted in a right view of the gospel and a false view of the gospel. So get geared up for a good old-fashioned five-point sermon this morning. That's what it's going to be. We don't do those that often, but we're going to go rapid fashion through five stark areas. Lindsay's laughing. Five stark areas of contrast. The first area has to do with our reaction. Are you surprised by grace or do you see it as expected? Do you see it as earned? Do you see it as something that everyone is owed? What if somebody leads an exceptional life? Chances are, if you see grace as earned, a right or expected, you will likely sympathize with the first workers who worked all day and were paid according to their agreement with the landowner. This view of salvation, it actually has little regard for the cross and sees it as a result of merit. It regards grace as a result of something that we do or something that we earn. As if we present a bill to God and say, pay up. We see this in the first group of workers lined up, waiting, and they respond after receiving their pay. Is this all you will pay us, they ask? But see, the generosity of Jesus, it isn't predictable. It is surprising. He isn't something we figure out. The gospel, it doesn't stick to the rules. It isn't what we've always known. There doesn't seem to be a rhyme or a reason. Jesus saves the young. He saves the old. He saves the rich, the poor, the most vile sinner next to the goody two-shoes. The gospel doesn't make philosophical sense. It's not normal. It's not usual. It can't be charted or reconciled, and it's not dependent on any earthly law. When it comes to rebirth, we don't control it. We don't cause it. The generosity of God is truly beyond us. The landowner didn't do what the workers thought he'd do. Jesus, air quote, went to the wrong towns. He hung around the wrong crowds. He talked to the wrong people. He touched the dirty. He saved the immoral. The gospel of Jesus never, it's never what the natural man expects it to be. This is the spirit of generosity we see from the life of Jesus and from a simple landowner who just wanted to pay his workers in a very special way. Salvation is like an unexpected gift that just shows up. It's actually very shocking. It changes us. It rearranges us. We receive a new birth, a new start, a new beginning. It's kind of like getting paid for a full day's work after only working for an hour, right? I would, have to, I would have loved to have been there that day. Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you have loved to have been there and seen the look on those workers' faces after being given a full day's pay? Which brings us to the second area of contrast. The first was our reaction. The second is, has to do with our expression to God. In light of this parable, do you respond in praise? Or do you respond in grumbling or murmuring? A false view of salvation will cause you to grumble, 
murmur, and it will even cause you to question and challenge God at his own ways. Why should God do this? It's always a characteristic of one who has a false view of generosity. Those who hold to this view of the gospel, they never hesitate to stand up to God. And I'm not saying that we can't ask honest questions. In doubt, there's a place for it. But these workers weren't asking honest questions. They were standing up in protest, some with fists in the air, just like the first group of workers did. Those with grumbling will also lack praise. Instead of praise, they will grumble. There's likely no song in the hearts for those who sympathize with the first workers. Does your view of the gospel make you sing? Do you well up at the songs of our faith? Or do you find yourself in line murmuring? It's no surprise that you would not have a song in your heart. I understand. If we're so focused on our own performance. However, when we see the great generosity of the landowner, when we see the infinite grace of our Jesus, there's, there's no room for grumbling. There's only room to sing praises of the one who has saved us. Maybe you aren't a bumbling grumbler in line. What is your praise like? When we come together to sing the songs of our faith as one voice to the creator of the universe, it should be more than a lowly whisper to the one who has shown us generosity and new life. His generosity, it truly calls for songs of loudest praise. And I'm not just talking about volume. This is about heart. When you get a full day's pay for an hour's work, you get excited. You're calling someone. You're saying, man, I, I showed up at five o'clock and I was done with work an hour later, and dude puts me at the front of the line. And then he says, here's a full day's of work, full, full day's pay of work for work. And you're calling somebody, you're telling him, you're saying, and then you're saying, I bet if you go meet this landowner, I bet you he'd do the same thing for you. And then you walk away saying, everybody is working for the weekend, right? That's what we're doing. We're happy. Was that on pitch? Did I? No, no, man, one day I will sing better than all of you. Yes, I can't sing. Our expressions of, pay, of praise or grumbling, they're really just reflections of the third area of contrast. And it's our view of God. So we have our reaction, our expression, and now our view of God. Is your view of one that sees him as sovereign in grace? Or do you see him as equal or subordinate? To you. We see the sovereignty of God jumping off of the pages when we read this parable. And I know that the last time I spoke here was Palm Sunday. It was largely about the sovereignty of God. And I'm unapologetic when I say, when I read God's word, I just see his sovereignty flowing off the page all the time. And when I read this parable, the same thing happened again. This landowner, he was sovereign in his vineyard, he sent them to work. It was all on his timing, he decided the amount. He directed the foreman, and everything was all in his unique order. The workers were subordinate to the landowner. The landowner is over his vineyard and all of his workers. And as the landowner was sovereign as an employer, so is Jesus sovereign in grace. Is your view of God high? Did Jesus save you by the power of his blood, or will you save yourself? 
Is it his kingdom? Is it his timing? Is it his grace? All in his order. Or do you determine the debt to be paid for your sin? Who is sovereign in grace? Is it God or is it you? Friends, it it cannot be both. Notice all of the workers that received generosity. They were also pursued by the landowner. He went to the marketplace and he saw them milling around at the end of the day. He pursued them on his own accord. The workers, they didn't seek out the landowner. They were practically beggars. They hadn't worked a minute the whole day as no one would hire them. These likely weren't the greatest workers. They were likely the leftovers. This should cause us great thankfulness, not murmuring, not grumbling. If it wasn't for his sovereign pursuit, we'd be milling around too at five o'clock in the afternoon, hopeless. This is how he has found all of us, just in time. I've heard the testimony of so many, so many that say, if he hadn't saved me when he saved me, I just don't know where I'd be. I was hopeless. If you're a Christian here today, this is your testimony too, whether you know it or not. Whether you've been saved at a young age or an old age, yesterday, today, or tomorrow, make no mistake about it, it was at the 11th hour. It was just in time. Where would those workers have landed if it wasn't for the generosity of the landowner? Our view of him will ultimately fuel our response to others in this world. You can see how these are connected. This fourth area of contrast, our response to others, it's either going to be in celebration or it's going to be in contempt. The first workers, they had no use for for the failures in this world. Those who have a false view of the gospel will lack mercy towards those who have accomplished very little or nothing in this world because they haven't performed. Lack of mercy will always result in a lack of celebration for those who do receive the generosity of new life. Do you look at admiration at your own clean record as if you're not like those other sinners? Or do you celebrate baptism? Or do you say, it's about time you got baptized? If so, you're just like the first workers. It's actually looking at others with contempt. Maybe you think being a Christian means living a perfect life. This is evident in your judgment towards those who fail morally. There was contempt in the tone of the first worker. You can almost hear his tone as you read the response. If you find yourself sort of sympathizing with the ones who worked all day, what is your view of celebration? If we can't celebrate a wicked downtrodden sinner receiving grace from our generous Lord, what can we celebrate? Think thief on the cross. What is your view of grace? Is it even grace? Or is it a ledger that you look to? How do you treat those who don't measure up to your standard? Do you have contempt for them? Or do you see them as brothers and sisters On a journey, do you see them as fellow workers who have sinned greatly, but Jesus has paid for their sin so much more generously? How we respond to others reveals reveals much about our view of the gospel. And so as we get to the 
fifth, I told you it was going to be fast, the fifth area of contrast. And it's what we think and feel about God. We have our reaction, our expression, our view, our response. And now what do we think about God? Do we see, are we, do we have amazement towards him? Or do we see him as questionable or possibly even unjust? The same goes for our view of grace. We're either amazed by grace or we see it as questionable. The generosity of Jesus is amazing and incomprehensible. The first will be last. The last will be first. On the surface, this is nonsense. It's incomprehensible. I say this because if you don't understand that the nature of the kingdom of heaven is unlike anything you've ever seen before, then you may have missed the entire message of the gospel. This is precisely where the disciples were. This is why he told them this parable to begin with. If the gospel doesn't astound, amaze, and astonish you, you may not have heard it. Isaiah 55, 8 says, My thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord, and my ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. Mary was amazed. Nicodemus said, how can these things be at Jesus's explanation of rebirth? We should all stand in staggering amazement at the economy of the kingdom of God. What does all of this mean? The gospel is like anything we've ever heard. There's no getting tired of reading, preaching, listening, contemplating, considering, and discussing the gospel of Jesus. There's nothing like it. But the first worker, he would have nothing of it. Where are you? Is it old? Is it rote? Are his mercies new every day? How generous of him, by the way, to give us new mercies every day. His generosity is set apart. It's genuinely hard to articulate it. We sing a song called Reckless Love. And I'll admit, I've wrestled with this word reckless in that song. I've even gone so far as to replace it with the word generous when I sing it because I just couldn't translate it. Think about it. This landowner, he wasn't reckless. He was specific in his selection of workers. He was up early. The sun comes up. It's time for work. He chose them at different times in an orderly fashion. There's zero indication that he was haphazard. He wasn't disorderly in his processing of payment. He lined them up in the order that he determined. There was no clumsy, reckless behavior here. He's totally in control. The amount that he paid them, however, it was seemingly foolish. Does it make sense to pay someone a full day's wage for an hour of work? From a, from a business perspective, this makes absolutely no sense. Economically speaking, this is how you wreck a business. This is no way to motivate a team, as we see by the responses of the uh, first workers. These were his best workers, likely. He wrecked them. This is an HR nightmare. Just like in today's economy, the landowner would have had a cash flow train wreck on his hands. But remember, my thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord. And my ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. So if reckless is a means to communicate the upside-downness of the gospel and kingdom-mindedness 
and generosity, then I couldn't agree more with the author. But make no mistake, Jesus is not clumsy in his grace. His generosity is upside down and reckless only to us because his thoughts are not like ours and his ways are not like ours. They're beyond ours. There's nothing accidental or reckless about the personal, the personal intimacy that he desires specifically for his followers. I do sympathize with anyone attempting to describe the indescribable, especially with me as a critic. After spending this week considering the passage, I have grown cautiously fond of this word reckless. And I will say reckless now when I sing the song for the record. How reckless of me. But maybe amazement isn't what you stand in. On the contrary, there's still some, maybe even here, that are like the early morning laborers. Those who see the gift of salvation as simply unfair, unjust. Some would even go so far as to say that it's unethical and immoral. This may be a surprise to those who cherish his generosity. I ask again, do you sympathize with the early workers? I repeat this question because there's something very telling about who we align with when we read this parable. Do you ask, how dare someone receive the same payment for a fraction of the labor? Right? Isn't it simply wrong? There's no equality in the wage per hour. This is ludicrous. It just isn't right. This landowner should be shut down, shouldn't he? It's likely that he would be shut down as an employer today, especially if he did this with the gospel as the motivation. How did all of this end? Isn't that where we really want to go? How did all of this end? How did it play out? The text is so clear. Did the early workers get the day's wage that was agreed upon? Yes, they did. Was the landowner generous to them? No. We can't miss this. He was not generous with the transaction with the early workers. How do we know this? Firstly, there was an agreement in place. The agreement implies an equal swap of value. Secondly, yeah, as if I'll work for you for a day, you pay me a day's wage. There was an agreement. The, uh, secondly, the wage is described as normal. It was usual. In the Greek, it's denarius, and that was defined as a common laborer's pay for a long day's work. Nothing more, nothing less. It was common. It was normal pay. Perhaps in today's time, it could even be translated to something like minimum wage. If any of you have ever agreed to work for minimum wage or are working for minimum wage today, chances are you don't see this as generous. And rightly so. It's common. It's normal. It's usual. It's not a generous wage. This was, however, a display of the landowner's justice. The landowners simply meant the terms of their agreement. It was right. It was just. It was ethical and in no way debatable as to the terms were clear and the terms of the agreement were met. So the end of the first laborers was disappointment. They supposed they would have received more, but they got exactly what they bargained for. But sadly, it just didn't end in disappointment. 
What does he say to the workers who worked all day? What was his response? His words were exactly, take your money and go. I'm a business owner, okay? I'm a businessman. I've been in business and finance for almost 30 years. I'm dated. I know what these words mean. This is a dismissal. This is a separation. Go on, get away. Take your grumbling, take your money, and go. That's what he told them. I've had to utter these exact words one time in my career. It's not fun. It's not celebratory. And it's not generous. I'll never forget it. But I was just. It had to be done. The word go used here, it's the same word that Jesus used when he told Satan to leave. And it's also the same word in Revelation used in reference to eternal destruction. Friends, it didn't end well for the first workers. It should be noted, there's no joy before the landowner here with this first group of workers. And the same is with our Lord. Will you receive his generosity? Will you work in his vineyard this day? And by the way, this picture of the day for us This is a picture of our whole life. Will you toil in his vineyard during your life? Or will you grumble at the hard work and the toil that you will go through only to have him dismiss you in the end? Will you keep your back straight and your arms crossed at the landowner demanding payment? Or will you bend in humility at the generosity of the cross? Are you a justice warrior? If so, good. The early workers were treated with the utmost of justice. The workers didn't work. The workers who didn't work a full day, they received both justice and generosity. But they didn't work a full day. How did they receive justice? Because it's lawful and it's just for the landowner to pay them what he wanted. Notice, none of the nine o'clock, noon o'clock, or three o'clock workers cried about injustice. Of course not, because they were treated justly, and they received what was both just and generous. How generous of him to go look for workers at the 11th hour. This five o'clock group is the one that I just love. He knew that the only workers left were the last ones to be picked. But yet with an hour to go, he went and he pursued them. And he said, he said, go and join the other workers. He didn't even tell the five o'clock workers that they were going to make anything. The same command of the gospel applies today. The time is now. Now is the day of salvation. Will you hear him say, go and join the other workers? Or will you hear him say, take your money and go? Ban, you can come forward. Oh, the generosity of God. (laughs) Why did he send his son into this vile world? Was it because he saw something beautiful in us? I'm afraid not. 
He came in spite of us. Do you see this generosity? He didn't even spare the death of his own son. Has there ever been a more generous one? Jesus just doesn't tell us to be more generous this season. He dies so we could receive generosity. What will you do with this generosity that you have been afforded? Will you be looking out for what is yours? Or will you have your eyes on everyone else's work? Or will you walk in the spirit of Christmas this year? Will you walk as one who has received a full day's pay for an hour of work? Every week we take communion together here at Highland. And at the corners of the room, we'll have the bread and the juice. Here we ask that those who participate in taking the bread and juice are those who are like the late workers. The ones who have received generosity of the landowner. We remember that the generosity of the cross each week because it's easy to slip into the attitude of the first workers. It's easy to grumble. It's easy to murmur. But we need the reminder of the generous landowner. If you've always identified with the first workers, but now you see the generosity of the landowner, then I invite you to the table to take the bread and the juice that reminds us of what he has done on our behalf. He died for our sins on the cross of Calvary. He was buried, he was raised, and he was seen before many. If you find yourself grumbling or murmuring that this weekly reminder is a bother, or wrote, I remind you, I warn you, don't take the attitude of the first workers. It only ends in disappointment and separation. After communion, let us celebrate together. And when we enter into a time of praise, may our praise be overflowing from generosity that he has offered us. Reckless, generous, or some other word, lift him up. As we go into the marketplace this week, let's tell others of the generosity of the landowner. May our lives, words, and actions mirror the generosity of Jesus this season. Father, thank you for pursuing us with parables to communicate the way of the kingdom. Thank you for your word. Thank you for pursuing us at nine o'clock, at noon at three, and at five, all in the nick of time, the 11th hour. Thank you for your generosity of giving your son to die in spite of our grumbling and our murmuring. We can't repay you. Help us to love those in our life like you have loved us. Help us to reflect your generosity to those around us this Christmas season. We ask these things for your glory, and in thanksgiving, in Jesus' name.